Episode 8, Into That Dark Maze. Welcome back, I'm Wesley Schantz. The Game Cool book series on The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman goes hurtling along this week into Chapter 6, The Throwing Nets. And there's an accompanying reading, which I'll post on the course page, linked in the description, that'll include a couple of classic novels by Lewis Carroll, some light reading for your Thanksgiving weekend, as well as a few short essays by Philip Pullman. Let's pretend, let's write it in red, and the writing of stories. There we'll get a fairly extended rumination on passages from this chapter, a tantalizing taste of butterfly soup, as he describes his writing in that autobiographical sketch. I have a feeling this all belongs to me. For example, this comes from the writing of stories. It's page 39 in Demon Voices. The final passage I want to comment on is a pretty straightforward piece of dialogue. Lyra is running away, and she stops at a coffee stall, where she attracts the attention of the man whose picture is reproduced here. That's his demon on his shoulder, a lemur. If you imagine a sort of suave, upper-class Leslie Phillips voice for him, you'll get his tone exactly right. And he quotes from the book. He says, The reason I put this in is to explain just briefly why dialogue is easier to write than narrative. Once you've got the characters established in your mind, you can hear what they say to each other quite easily. And because they give you the words, you write them down. You can also see what they do, of course, but that doesn't come in the... F form of words, it comes in the form of pictures, and you have to find the words, and that's not so easy. Do you say, she stopped at the coffee stall, or Lyra saw the coffee stall and stopped, or seeing the coffee stall, Lyra decided to stop? There are a hundred ways of saying it, and with each variation, you have to choose what to put in and what to leave out. In fact, here I said, at a crossroads near the corner of a big department store, whose windows shone brilliantly over the wet pavement, there was a coffee stall, a little hut on wheels, with a counter under the wooden flap that swung up like an awning. Yellow light glowed inside, and the fragrance of coffee drifted out. The white-coated owner was leaning on the counter, talking to the two or three customers. It was tempting. Lyra had been walking for an hour now, and it was cold and damp. That's functional. You put in a few little visual details the yellow light, the brilliance of the shop windows, the wet pavement. Anyone who wanted to could visualize it without difficulty. But there's not so much that it gets in the way and holds the story up while you demonstrate your mastery of descriptive prose. But every phrase has to be thought about and alternatives rejected. And now I see this again. I realize that it would have been better to say of the wooden flap that it was suspended rather than that it swung up, because swung up is active, it suggests movement. And of course, it's not moving, it's still. That's the sort of thing you have to think about and often get wrong. It's just harder to do. But when Lyra says, I told you he's a murderer, and so on, I didn't have to think about it the same way. I did make one or two little changes. Originally, after the words, I can see my father, I began to write, now, but stop before I finished that word and changed it to coming now instead. It's more vivid. He's not just standing there, he's getting closer. But that's all. Dialogue, for me, is very much easier than narrative. So he points out one of the infelicities of his descriptive prose there, and uh, in passing, mocks people who try to be showing off how masterful they are. 
Um, and arguably, on the macro level as well, this is one of the weaker chapters in the book. On the face of it, it's just a transitional section, a way to get from one big part of the story to another, from Mrs. Coulter's flat in London to the world of the Egyptians. And this transitional nature could help account for that looseness in the narration, on the sentence level, perhaps. And there may be something intentional there, adding a bit of breathing room, a chance to uh, stretch and invent for Pullman without too much hinging on the writing. Somehow he needs to get Lyra moving again, but there's an aimlessness to her movement at first. There's a dependence on action to make up for the uncertain direction of the plot, which mirrors perfectly Lyra's own confused feelings. Her unsettledness, too. The action is apparently arbitrary, unconnected, until the introduction or reintroduction of the Egyptians to the story. Even they encounter Lyra seemingly by chance, and everyone is correspondingly surprised and elated. We can imagine a story in which Lyra is pursued from the party, maybe by the police, in which she's rescued by the Egyptians who've been tracking her all along, and make it a little tighter, but instead Pullman relies on a certain amount of randomness, and I think it's to good effect. The narrator's artfulness is as much in evidence as ever at the start of the chapter. She walked quickly away from the river, because the embankment was wide and well lit, and there was a tangle of narrow streets between there and the Royal Arctic Institute, which was the only place Lyra was sure of being able to find, and into that dark maze she hurried now. If only she knew London as well as she knew Oxford, then she would have known which streets to avoid, or where she could scrounge some food, or best of all, which doors to knock on and find shelter. In that cold night, the dark alleys all around were alive with movement and secret life, and she knew none of it. I think I hear echoes of the Miltonic poem uh, there in the opening of the chapter, Into That Dark Maze. She hurried now, mirrors syntactically into this wild abyss, and there's the innocence and experience theme sounded as well with that phrase that she knows none of it, uh, of the life of the cold night in the dark alleys um, movement. Um, she's protected by her innocence in one way there, but in another it makes her vulnerable and that will be the dominant theme of the chapter, the way that Lyra here is a kind of sheep in wolf's clothing, and the way that London is a big part of that missing uh, portion of her map of the world. As it goes on, Pantalaimon became a wildcat and scanned the dark all around with his night-piercing eyes. Every so often he'd stop bristling and she would turn aside from the entrance she'd been about to go down. The night was full of noises, bursts of drunken laughter, two raucous voices raised in song, the clatter and whine of some badly oiled machine in a basement. Lyra walked delicately through it all, her senses magnified and mingled with pantalimons, keeping to the shadows in the narrow alleys. From time to time she had to cross a wider, well-lit street, where the tramcars hummed and sparked under their unbaric wires. There were rules for crossing London streets, but she took no notice, and when anyone shouted, she fled. It was a fine thing to be free again. She knew that Pantalaimon, patting on wildcat paws behind, beside her, felt the same joy as she did to be in the open air. 
even if it was murky London air laden with fumes and soot and clangorous with noise. Sometime soon they'd have to think over the meaning of what they'd heard in Mrs. Coulter's flat, but not yet, and sometime eventually they'd have to find a place to sleep. Then we get the description of the coffee stall, but just pausing there, she doesn't want to think yet about what she's learned. And that makes me think about the kinds of knowledge that people don't want to think about, um, that she'll want to put this off, uh, although she won't put it off indefinitely. And I think that's wise too. Um, that mention of a place to sleep made me kind of make the leap. I don't know how big a one to the kind of knowledge of death that is what seems to me most people are least uh, inclined to think about if they can avoid it. Um, knowledge of death seems to be the quintessential knowledge um, from the story of the fall and one that no one willingly thinks about but might have to, uh, might be uh, unescapable. And to think about it is a choice still, um, one that can be postponed. It would require taking a stand on certain things that might not be possible to know with certainty, uh, the kinds of things that would fall into the category of theology, of religion, and that's definitely something that people are, many people at least are uncomfortable uh, taking a position on, because it's sort of either or. Um, Lyra has also managed to put off thinking of Roger, of course, for a long time now, thanks in large part to her curiosity and involvement in all those new diversions. And this chapter portrays a kind of plunge into the dark side of all that pleasant, easy life that she's been living in London. We see that in the imagery of light and dark. She flees from the light um, into the dark. And we see that still more strongly in imagery of violence and death that catch up with her there in the dark alleys. Those kinds of things might stand in for the, the thoughts that she isn't ready yet to deal with. But by the end of the chapter, she will finally declare her intention to rescue Roger. But she'll still hold something else back. We also see here about the feelings and sensations that demons and their people share. We touched on the examples of Pan trembling and fighting in chapter 5, but here we get his senses augmenting Lyra's. Not everything is shared, of course. It's not like their thoughts are telepathic because they talk things out. We've seen that from the very beginning of the book. They see things at the same time, um, but they see them for themselves, and I think this is important. We'll see an example of that later. And Lyra has concealed things from Pan, and they felt differently towards Mrs. Coulter. And in terms of the storytelling, we never see the narration the way we do from Lyra's put in Pan's point of view precisely. Uh, and that, uh, that makes me think also that I should have said something before now, speaking of the storytelling, about the name Mrs. Coulter. It's uh, the word Coulter, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, it's a, it's a cutting tool, a vertical blade at the front of a plow, um, is the definition I found. So the images of breaking up the earth and making it ready for planting seeds. The idea of a vertical blade looks something like 
the silver guillotine we'll encounter later, but I wonder if this agricultural rather than executionary image is closer to Pullman's work as the storyteller. We'll learn more about where Mrs. Coulter got her name in the coming chapter or two, along with the truth at last about Lyra's parentage. Some etymologies that begin to impinge upon us in this chapter also include the false name Lyra gives the top hat man, about which more in a moment, and coal silk as plastic, as in a shopping bag, and the chthonic rail for the underground, the tube. There, hearing about that, we get the difference in class strongly marked once more that Mrs. Coulter said riding the chthonic rail is not really for people of their class. Um, this could have been Mrs. Coulter's uh, uh, reflective of the way that she likes to stay aloof um, vertically as well. Um, think of the Zeppelin that she rides in and that she'll ride again in later. Lyra wants to stay out of it now, although she's curious about it, the chthonic rail, because it's underground, she wants to stay out in the open. Um, but the mention of the Zeppelin also, I, I probably should have pointed out that hearing that her parents died in an aeronautical accident, it's a little curious in hindsight that Lyra wasn't more nervous about riding in the Zeppelin with Mrs. Coulter on their flight to London. Um, now, proceeding forward a bit more now, this chapter is structured around that series of chance encounters with the coffee stall and the man in the top hat, and the picture paper man and right on his heels, the Turk traders and the Egyptians. And not just any Egyptians, ones who recognize Lyra, who know something about her that she doesn't yet know herself. Only in the last of these encounters do we see literal throwing nets flying around, wielded by the Turk traders, as Tony Costa uh, presumes they are. And uh, from these, Lyra is cut free by good fortune. But all of these represent points at which Lyra could be caught, and we'll take them in turn. So first we have the coffee cart, the description of which I already read. It was quoted in Pullman's essay. And uh, I skipped over then, though, the uh, conversation with the top hat man, so let me read from that. Uh, it was tempting. Lyra had been walking for an hour now and was cold and damp. With pantalime and a sparrow, she went up to the counter and reached up to gain the owner's attention. A cup of coffee and a ham sandwich, please, she said. You're out late, my dear, said a gentleman in a top hat and white silk muffler. Yeah, she said, turning away from him to scan the busy intersection. The theater nearby was just emptying, and crowds milled around the lighted foyer, calling for cabs, wrapping coats around their shoulders. In the other direction was the entrance of a chthonic railway station, with more crowds pouring up and down the steps. Here you are, love, said the coffee stall man. Two shillings. Let me pay for this, said the man in the top hat. Lyra thought, why not? I can run faster than him, and I might need all my money later. The top-hatted man dropped a coin on the counter and smiled down at her. His demon was a lemur. It clung to his lapel, staring round-eyed at Lyra. She bit into her sandwich and kept her eyes on the busy street. 
She had no idea where she was, because she had never seen a map of London. She didn't even know how big it was, or how far she'd have to walk to find the country. "'What's your name?' said the man. "'Alice. That's a pretty name. Let me put a drop of this into your coffee. Warm you up.' He was unscrewing the top of a silver flask. "'I don't like that,' said Lyra. "'I just like coffee.' "'I bet you've never had brandy like this before.' "'I have.' I was sick all over the place. I had a whole bottle, or nearly. Just as you like, said the man, tilting the flask into his own cup. Where are you going, all alone like this? Going to meet my father. And who's he? He's a murderer. He's what? I told you, he's a murderer. It's his profession. He's doing a job tonight. I got his clean clothes in here, because he's usually all covered in blood when he's finished a job. Ah, you're joking. I ain't. The lemur uttered a soft mewing sound and clambered slowly up behind the man's head to peer out at her. She drank her coffee stolidly and ate the last of her sandwich. Good night, she said. I can see my father coming now. He looks a bit angry. The top hat man glanced around and Lyra set off toward the theater crowd. Despite drinking the wine with Roger in the catacombs of Jordan and being curious about the cocktails at the party... Here, Lyra is tempted more by the coffee and food, but not seduced by the flask of brandy. She gives the whimsical name Alice, making the connection to the great fabulist pre-Tolkien and Lewis, Lewis Carroll, uh, whose interest in the historical inspiration for his character Alice may have been questionable, but who was inspired to write for her some of the greatest imaginative works in literature. So, Lyra lets the top hat uh, man, perhaps uh, alluding to the Mad Hatter, uh, buy her coffee, lets, her buy, lets him buy her coffee, but otherwise she manifests uh, disinterest in him. To put him off, she tells a very non-Alice in Wonderland sort of tale, a more gothic or detective story premise about a murderer father, which is oddly close to the truth. Uh, and the lemur, the emblem of the man's creepy interest, is spooked, so it's successful. Though he persists, saying, you're joking, she perseveres and outbluffs him with her rejoinder. Whose story will prevail? Well, plainly, Lyra is more than a match for the top hat man, after having escaped Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal. And then the scene shifts to the grim suburbs and industrial districts. On and on she walked, and the streets became darker and emptier. It was drizzling, but even if there had been no clouds, the city sky was too tainted with light to show the stars. Pantalaimon thought they were going north, but who could tell? Endless streets of little identical brick houses with gardens only big enough for a dustbin. Great gaunt factories behind wire fences, with one emberic light glowing bleakly high up on a wall and a night watchman snoozing by his brazier. Occasionally a dismal oratory only distinguished from a warehouse by the crucifix outside. Once she tried the door of one of these places, only to hear a groan from the bench a foot away in the darkness. She realized that the porch was full of sleeping figures and fled. "'Where are we going to sleep, Pan?' she said as they trudged down a street of closed and shuttered shops. "'A doorway somewhere? Don't want to be seen, though. They're all so open. There's a canal down there.' In that sentence with the 
Garden's only big enough for a dustbin. That's interesting. There's also the parallel between the dismal oratories and the gaunt factories, um, marked even by the punctuation with its uh, semicolon. The balance in that sentence is, is lovely. And what it depicts is not. Um, and that seems uh, interesting to me, given that Pullman is not seeking to draw attention to the um, beauty of his style so much as to tell an interesting story uh, that it does hold up when you go back and look at it, at least in my reading. Um, we also see paralleled the homeless, uh, the poor, and the structures generating the great wealth on the one hand of people like Mrs. Coulter and the rest of people at her party, and the poverty of these uh, sleeping figures. Lyra flees the one just as she does the other. She's emphasized before that she wants to be out in the open, but here that has to be balanced against the need for shelter and concealment, that these uh, porches are all too open, the doorways. Um, the desire not to get boxed in to a corner will be repeated when she's fleeing from the uh, throwing nets. And like uh, Pan's ability to change, uh, which he was emphasizing when he was looking forward to a rematch with the golden monkey, um, this also has to be weighed against her fatigue. She can't run forever. At some point, she'll have to stand and fight her pursuers. Um, that uh, need for shelter is also connected uh, persistently here to her lack of knowledge about where to go to find it. Um, she must instead, lacking knowledge, rely on her intuitions about this. And she seems to have a good feeling about the hut with a man inside reading his picture paper. Um, although the reader might have a bad feeling about these gallows-like cranes. So, Pan was looking down a side road to the left. Left. Sure enough, a patch of dark glimmer showed open water, and when they cautiously went to look, they found a canal basin where a dozen or so barges were tied up at the wharves, some high in the water, some low and laden under the gallows-like cranes. A dim light shone in one window of a wooden hut, and a thread of smoke rose from the metal chimney. Otherwise, the only lights were high up on the wall of the warehouse or the gantry of a crane, leaving the ground in gloom. The wharves were piled high with barrels of coal spirit, that's oil, with stacks of great round logs, with rows of Kulshuk-covered cable. Lyra tiptoed up to the hut and peeped in at the window. An old man was laboriously reading a picture story paper and smoking a pipe, with his spaniel demon curled up asleep on the table. As she looked, the man got up and brought a blackened kettle from the iron stove and poured some hot water into a cracked mug before settling back with his paper. Though in the course of the narration, this near meeting flows immediately into the fight with these assailants, I think it's important to look at the picture paper man at our more leisure. He's ensconced in the hut, but also within this language. Um, the word koshuk 
see, or if I'm pronouncing that wrong too, sorry, but that seems to be a word that means rubber. Uh, and coal spirit, as I mentioned as I was reading it, seems to be what we would call um, oil, petroleum, petrol, I guess, in the UK. Um, and the uh, care with which Pullman narrates the old man's movements here emphasize the cozy scene within the room and also the sharp contrast to Lyra's fatigue and the frantic chase that's about to occur. In there represents all the habitual routines and comforts that Lyra is now missing. The man's reading is described as laborious, or he reads laboriously. Um, and depending on what you take that unusual adverb to mean here, it's a picture of at least one aspect of what Lyra's reading of the alethiometer will look like later. Uh, he's reading a picture story. Um, yet she holds back from asking for help. She's as if transfixed by the peace and comfort of the scene before her and unwilling to interrupt into it, or else she's just been made wary by all her recent experiences with seemingly safe and inviting people and places. Pan too is distracted. Should we ask him to let us in, Pan? she whispered. But he was distracted. He was a bat, an owl, a wildcat again. She looked all round, catching his panic, and then saw them at the same time he seated. Two men running at her, one from each side, the nearer holding a throwing net. Pantalaimon uttered a harsh scream and launched himself at a, as a leopard at the closer man's demon, a savage-looking fox, bowling her backward and tangling with the man's legs. The man cursed and dodged aside, and Lyra darted past him toward the open spaces of the wharf. What she mustn't do was get boxed in a corner. Pantalaimon and Eagle now swooped at her and cried, Left! Left! She swerved that way and saw a gap between the coal spirit barrels and the end of a corrugated iron shed and darted for it like a bullet. But those throwing nets. She heard a hiss in the air, and past her cheek something lashed and sharply stung, and loathsome tarred strings whipped across her face, her arms, her hands entangled and held her, and she fell, snarling and tearing and struggling in vain. Pan! Pan! But the fox demon tore at the cat pantalimon, and Lyra felt the pain in her own flesh and sobbed a great cry as he fell. We'd seen the severed head of Stanislaus Grumman in its block of ice, and we'd heard Lyra's blood-curdling stories of Azriel killing his captors with a glance. And we've seen demons fight and children fight and heard various theories on what happens to children who've gone missing. But this is the first up-close combat, the first bloodshed in the story. Pan proves to be undaunted by having come up short in his demon struggle with the golden monkey. His fierce tackle, tangling the man up with his own demon, gives Lyra the chance to run for it. He changes swiftly to guide and encourage her, but they can't run fast enough. The nets tangle her up. Now, what happens next is... One man was swiftly lashing cords around her, around her limbs, her throat, body, head, bundling her over and over on the wet ground. She was helpless, exactly like a fly being trussed by a spider. Poor hurt Pan was dragging himself toward her, with the fox demon worrying his back, and he had no strength left to change even. The other man was lying in a puddle, with an arrow through his neck. The whole world grew still as the man tying the net saw it too. Pantalaimon sat up and blinked 
and then there was a soft thud, and the netman fell choking and gasping right across Lyra, who cried out in horror. That was blood gushing out of him. Running feet, and someone hauled the man away and bent over him, and then other hands lifted Lyra. A knife snicked and pulled, and the net strings fell away one by one, and she tore them off, spitting, and hurled herself down to cuddle Pantalaimon. Kneeling, she twisted to look up at the newcomers, three dark men, one armed with a bow, the others with knives, and as she turned, the bowman caught his breath. That ain't Lyra. Now, even after the fight, Pan still dominates our attention as his curiosity about what happens to the dead men's demons overpowers even this newcomer, uh, or the curiosity about this newcomer, and directs Lyra's attention to another new and arresting sight. Lyra stood up shakily, holding the wildcat pantalimon to her breast. He was twisting to look at something, and she followed his gaze, understanding and suddenly curious too. What had happened to the dead men's demons? They were fading, that was the answer. Fading and drifting away like atoms of smoke for all that they tried to cling to their men. Pantalaimon hid his eyes, and Lyra hurried blindly after Tony Costa. So there again we have that confusion or interpenetration between the demon's senses, he hides his eyes, and Lyra's feelings, if not her sensations, that she hurries blindly after Tony Costa. I think more metaphorically than literally there. Um, to look at the other metaphor we got there, or simile rather, what begins here as a simile, like atoms of smoke dispersing, will become essentially a literal description by the end of the amber spyglass for what happens upon death. Maybe the ambaric charge that we heard about running through Mrs. Coulter and her demon is not entirely metaphorical either. It's starting to look as though Whatever physical form the demons possess, they are a kind of electromagnetic field or projection of the person's life, and they're material and contingent. Accounting for that abrupt and reassuring end to the fight are those three figures, like the angels in some Old Testament stories. The narrator himself seemed taken by surprise here, um, and the question is about the dead men's demons is answered in terms of the story. Um, I think that Pullman, as much as the reader, is finding out what's happening here as he's writing it. That's the impression that's conveyed anyhow. Uh, it's also, of course, closely uh, zooming in on Lyra's shock at her near capture. But that is replaced in quick succession by horror at the violence, and that's momentary, but not for long, because it's uh, overtaken by her sense of Pan's hurt as she scoops him up, and then at, by her relief at being freed, and still more unexpectedly uh, at recognizing her saviors. The new character introduced here uh, actually has the same name as another character that we've met before. A couple of different ones. His first name, Tony, is the same as Tony Macarios. And his last name, Costa, of course, because he's brother of Billy Costa and son of Ma Costa, all of whom we met back in Chapter 3. So what's that about? Well, sharing Tony Macario's name makes them sort of counterparts, the one taken and the other 
rescuing. It further complicates a confusion we might have already been experiencing, thinking of Tony Macarios and Billy Costa, both of whose disappearances took place back to back and whose nicknames sound similar enough anyway to get them mixed up. And besides this maybe chance repetition of the name Tony, we have to ask what to make of the Egyptian's appearance here, just in time to save Lyra. Tony not only shares another character's name, he has the same demon, a hawk, as his mother. It begins to look as though families and maybe cultural groups share demons, just like we saw earlier with the dogs of servants. There's more examples of this and other patterns with demons that help reinforce some of those class structures and social roles that are so uh, prevalent in Lyra's world. As for Tony, he needs something now to set him apart. And the first main thing is the bow that he carries. It will associate him later with the witches. But for now, it only connects him to more classical touchstones outside of and prior to this story, to the likes of Odysseus, or Philoctetes, or to Robin Hood. Between Tony's bow and the knives of the other two men, we might remark upon how Lyra remains unarmed throughout the story. It makes for a strong contrast. Despite that emphatic simile of a fly being trussed by a spider, it contrasts with the scene in Mirkwood in The Hobbit, where Bilbo uses his sword for the first time and names it Sting. There's also an interesting concession here to the religious feeling that gets embodied, embedded rather, in language. Um, Lyra exclaims, Oh God, Pan, we're safe, she sobbed. But then a thought rushed into her mind. It was the Costa's boat she'd hijacked that day. Suppose he remembered. <laughs> so immediately it's undercut by this memory. Um, again, the way that they come just in time here uh, to rescue Lyra, Pullman could have easily invented a reason for this. He could have said that they were tracking Lyra all along, or maybe just that they were tracking the, the net men. Um, instead, though, all Tony says is that they happen to be nearby taking on stores, and that they're on their way to the roping. So, in a sense, they are motivated by the gobblers. That's what's led to the call for a gathering, a muster of the Egyptians. And this danger um, being present must also be part of why at least they go armed uh, about their uh, grocery shopping and whatever else they're doing, taking on stores and keeping them alert enough that they hear this commotion going on and come to the rescue. But ultimately, it seems that this is all left up to whatever that providence was that the master had invoked earlier. That check that comes immediately, the idea of stealing the boat being recalled, uh, on the one hand brings with it the whole carefree life of Oxford that uh, Tony Costa also evokes, when he reminds Lyra of who he is. Um, but Lyra is very concerned. Can this really be her first thought upon being rescued, to then worry that her rescuer will remember this uh, 
this um, theft of her uh, of her own um, this uh, terrible uh, prank that she and her friends got up to. Anyway, her caution here and her suspicion seems tireless. In the first of many instances, as we come through the end of this chapter, she is bid to keep quiet here. What are you doing here? She said. Quiet, Gao. There's enough trouble awake without stirring more. We'll talk on the boat. He led her over a little wooden bridge into the heart of the canal basin. The other two men were padding silently after them. Tony turned along the waterfront and out onto a wooden jetty, from which he stepped on board a narrow boat and swung open the door to the cabin. Get in, he said. Quick now. Lyra did so, patting her bag, which she had never let go of even in the net, to make sure the alethiometer was still there. In the long, narrow cabin, by the light of a lantern on a hook, she saw a stout, powerful woman with gray hair sitting at a table with a paper. Lyra recognized her as Billy's mother. Who's this? the woman said. That's never Lyra. That's right, Ma. We gotta move. Oh, sorry. That's right. Ma, we gotta move. We killed two men out in the basin. We thought they were goblers, but I reckon they were Turk traders. They'd caught Lyra. Never mind talk. We'll do that on the move. Come here, child, said Ma Costa. Lyra obeyed, half happy, half apprehensive, for Ma Costa had hands like bludgeons, and now she was sure it was their boat she had captured with Roger and the other colligers. But the boat mother set her hands on either side of Lyra's face, and her demon, a hawk, bent gently to lick Pantalaimon's wildcat head. Then Ma Costa folded her great arms around Lyra and pressed her to her breast. I don't know what you're doing here, but you look wore out. You can have Billy's crib as soon as I've got a hot drink in you. Set you down there, child. It looked as if her piracy was forgiven, or at least forgotten. Lara slid onto the cushioned bench behind a well-scrubbed pine tabletop as the low rumble of the gas engine shook the boat. Where are we going? Lara asked. Ma Costa was setting a saucepan of milk on the iron stove and riddling the grate to stir the fire up. Away from here. No talking now. We'll talk in the morning. And she said no more handing Lyra a cup of milk when it was ready, swinging herself up on deck when the boat began to move, exchanging occasional whispers with the men. Lyra sipped the milk and lifted a corner of the blind to watch the dark wharves move past. A minute or two later, she was sound asleep. Now, in Ma's incredulity as she reads the paper, she's reminiscent of the man in the cozy hut, but also, likely enough, of the reader, of ourselves, and so it's interesting to set beside these, beside that these several reproofs of hers to forestall speech. We get another one later when we're told that Ma doesn't like to talk about the North. And that's just the same way that she stops Lyra from talking that night. And she'll also say, when they do start to hear Lyra's story, to her son, ask first, tell after. In that scene, Lyra brings her story together the way that she would shuffle a pack of cards. And that image uh, recurs to the idea of the chance that we've seen in this chapter, the looseness, in a sense, to uh, the way that Lyra withholds some information um, about the alethiometer and about her uncle, her intentions. But she'll reveal that all when we come to uh, retell the story once more with John Fa and Farah Coram 
the next chapter. We'll also maybe think of this image of the playing cards when we meet Lee Scoresby much later, and he uh, speaks of uh, card uh, playing as a, a great pride of the Egyptian people. Finally, it's a small way, an image of fortune telling too, um, which we'll see more of with the alethiometer shortly. Now, Ma's name is never given, her first name that is. Her role is her identity, and she will be a great mother to Lyra. The depth of their relationship will soon become plain. But the cost is last name. It seems to refer to the coast, the side, um, possibly the rib, if we go back to the Genesis imagery. Um, and in terms of how it sounds, the cost. All of that seems really interesting. In that Lyra's sleeping in Billy's bunk, she's taking his place in a way. So this makes Tony her big brother then. And we see this in his stories of the North that close the chapter. And these stories of everything in this somewhat tendentious chapter seem gratuitous. What are they there for except to fill out Tony's character? And not with just anything, but with one of Pullman's favorite traits, that of storyteller, and to give Tony something interesting to talk to Lyra about. Once Ma has left, and they're safely aboard the boat and moving, what do we hear about? We know what they do, at least we know a part of it. We know they don't come back. Them kids is taken up north, far out the way, and they do experiments on them. At first, we reckoned they tried out different diseases and medicines, but there'd be no reason to start that all of a sudden two or three years back. Then we thought about the Tartars. Maybe there's some secret deal they're making up Siberia way, because the Tartars want to move north just as much as the rest, for the coal spirit and the fire mines. And there's been rumors of war for even longer than the gobbler's been going, and we reckoned the gobblers were buying off the Tartar chiefs by giving them kids, because the Tartars eat them, don't they? They bake children and eat them. They never, said Lyra. They do. There's plenty of other things to be told and all. You ever heard of the Nelkainans? Lyra said no. Not even with Mrs. Coulter. What are they? That's the kind of ghost they have up in those forests. Same size as a child. And they got no heads. They feel their way about at night. And if you're sleeping out in the forest, they get a hold of you and won't nothing make them let go. Nelkainans. That's a northern word. And the windsuckers. They're dangerous too. They drift about in the air. You come across clumps of them floated together sometimes or caught snagged on a bramble. As soon as they touch you, all this strength goes out of you. You can't see them except as a kind of shimmer in the air. The breathless ones. Who are they? Warriors half killed. Being alive is one thing and being dead's another. But being half killed is worse than either. They just can't die. And living is altogether beyond them. They wander about forever. They're called the breathless ones because of what's been done to them. And what's that? said Lyra, wide-eyed. The North Tartars snap open their ribs and pull out their lungs. There's an art to it. They do it without killing them. But their lungs can't work anymore without their demons pumping them by hand. So the result is they're halfway between breath and no breath, life and death, half killed, you see. And their demons got to pump and pump all day and night or else perish with them. 
You come across a whole platoon of breathless ones in the forest sometimes, I've heard. And then there's the Panzerbjorna. You've heard of them? That means armored bears. The great white bears. And yes, I have heard of them. So we get all sorts of things in this. New cards for Lyra's clumsily collected story that she has shaken into order as if she was settling a pack of cards ready for dealing. We hear about the children who won't let go. The name Lakainen is a northern word, as if this in itself confers additional value on it, much the way that C.S. Lewis speaks of northernness, or Tolkien does in Laud's The Language of Kalevala. We hear about the windsuckers, specter-like spirits who we'll come back to once we reach Sidagazi, the world of the specters and the subtle knife. And then the breathless ones, warriors, supported by their demons, but otherwise unable to be killed. This helps show that the invention here is not wholly random at all, but instead reinforces the importance of links between ideas of strength, of demons, of life, of maturity. And at the end of this catalog enters in the bears, described as pitiless but trustworthy, as mercenaries but honorable. And again, at the beginning of the story, we had the red tartar, or the red herring of the tartars, tartar sauce fish. You know. So the red herring of the tartars again, and uh, a bit of economic real politic and medical research hovering on the edges of the main story. As we come to the end of this chapter, we hear our first mention of the next destination, the Fens, and of the major character that we'll meet there, John Fa, King of the Egyptians. That uh, will give us some more fun etymologies to look at next week and more geography to explore. Um, and in passing, I would note Lyra's fascination with Tony's stories here are is, is is interesting given that she herself has told very similar stories, right? We've seen uh, the night ghasts that come after her from the crypt in Jordan. They have no heads. Um, and we see that she had made up stories about the gobblers selling kids, or sorry, the about the Egyptians selling kids to the Turks, which is all very funny, uh, mixed up version of what's actually going on. Um, as she was about to tell that story to the scholar, and the journalist back in the cocktail party. Um, so we have all these bits and pieces of story shuffled and reshuffled and dealt out in different ways. And instead of calling it chance, I think we had better accept that this is just how a well-told story is told. You may have a chance to come back to this in regards to some specific critiques that I've had from uh, email exchanges with uh, Douglas Anderson, um, and uh, I hope to have him on the podcast at some point in the future when he has some time. Uh, he uh, has been very gracious in allowing me to quote from his emails, though, so I might do that instead, or at least in the meantime. Um, now, this brings us, though, to the end of the chapter and our recess this week, our Next stage in the imaginary video game adaptation of The Golden Compass, we'll dive in now to explore London by night. And there's that mixture of relief at being free and anxiety about not knowing where you are or where you're going. That's what we have to convey here 
in the game. I think that some of the sound imagery that Pullman himself gives is a great way to start this, and of course, the light and dark imagery as well. Another way to convey this is with Pan giving his suggestions to guide you through the dark streets and alleys, but without speaking, simply by bristling when it's not safe, and an absence of any indication when it is safe, which sounds to me a lot like Socrates' description of his demon, which only ever told him no <laughs> to an idea or thought. Then, as you go along, you'll come to that coffee cart, which will be impossible to miss, um, and you'll have that conversation with the top hat man, given a series of options for your side of the conversation that will test your ability again to invent and then to escape at the right moment into the crowd outside the theater. And more and more, I'm thinking of this part of the story as a kind of inversion of all those settings of the previous chapter. And so the game could play off of that, giving visual and musical echoes of the previous chapter of the game, but distorted in various ways through uh, light and shadow, through uh, sound effects, and of course, through the perspective uh, as well, uh, being different and subtle and unsettling ways. Um, most of all, we can do this with the, the warehouses and oratories. Um, it's never mentioned in the book, but I think it must be the case that Lyra and Mrs. Coulter would have been going to churches, maybe one church, maybe different ones, uh, over those weeks that they were together. Um, out here in, uh, in the outskirts of London, you'll have fewer and fewer options for doors to try and alleys to go down. And as you come to all those identical houses that are all shut with their little gardens, only big enough for a rubbish bin, you'll get the impression, I think, of a loop, one of those endless repetitions like the stairs towards the end of Super Mario 64 that you run up and up and they never end, or in Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation, then the, the certain scenes in the desert that is below the golden saucer. Um, so that, in this game, when you see the gleam, glimmer of water down a side street, it's a great relief. You might hesitate on the doorway of that hut, uh, perhaps reminiscent of the Porter's Lodge back at Jordan College, and then the ambush is sprung, the chase scene unfolds. It won't be a battle the way that Pan had fought the Golden Monkey, and instead it will be more like those free-flowing fights in the clay beds and fighting with the kids from the other colleges, but it will be much more terrifying because of how unfair it is. Like the fight with the Golden Monkey, you can't win, and you can't quite escape either. The closer you get, however, to escaping with Lyra, the better she'll be able to coordinate with Pan in the future to do things like bowling over the fox demon and making a run for it. And the better Pan's eagle form will perform in the future, uh, the further he'll be able to go from Lyra, say, when he takes any bird form. Some kind of reward like this for doing well in this fight. But the capture has to take place so that the rescue can too. 
so that this chapter can be called the throwing nets with any meaning at all. So with the appearance of the Egyptians and with boarding the boat, the game will shift again back into a kind of storytelling mode. But I hope it will be an interesting one. Um, there will be that fear of Makosta at first and transformed into love uh, and affection. There will be that uh, terror uh, pleasant one at the stories that Tony Costa tells, and um, in the next chapter we'll have more action once more though, because we'll hear about some activities that Lyra gets up to in the course of their journey to the Fens, um, but for now you do have those couple of conversations with the Costas to progress the story. Hearing that Lyra gathers a story like a pack of cards though, it makes me think that the player should of course have some say in what she chooses to tell and what she chooses to leave out. This, of course, is what Pullman describes as the job of the writer as well. Um, so in the game, you might have little scenes that are presented along with the different options to pick from, like a hand of cards. And then maybe within that, you'd have the choice to embellish things that you offer as well. So there might be some things that you have the option of telling, which never actually happen in the story. Now, since we don't hear Lyra's description of this um, to the Costas, we have a little bit of leeway about what version of this story she really tells. In the game, uh, the player can sort of make it up as they go. And we also never do hear exactly, in this chapter at least, Lyra think about what she's learned. Um, that will wait for meeting John Fa and Father Quorum. Now, this episode has run long again. Uh, thank you for your patience and for listening. Um, the last image that I'd leave you with is of that delicious one. Hopefully for your Thanksgiving weekend here, you can imagine the uh, bacon rashers and the egg and the water droplets hissing and jumping on the stove. Uh, so until we reach the fens, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, I should mention that next week I'll be releasing another conversation episode with Gabriel Shank. So look forward to that, and I look forward, as always, to hearing any questions and comments you might have. Feel free to send those in via the course page and the blog at newschoolnotes.blogspot.com. Uh, so thanks again for listening. Take care. <laughs>